Our passage this morning is in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we'll look at the first 17 verses as we begin our study in the book of Romans and begin to work our way through it. I should tell you by way of explanation that the reason we're reading through the book of Leviticus paired with the book of Romans is Leviticus is going to show us that in spite of all of our best efforts, there's no way we can possibly keep the law that would be pleasing to God. And so we need a Savior. We heard it this morning. We need a sacrifice for our sins. And sacrificed bulls showed the need for a Savior to come and take the sins of the people away. And now we have that Savior in Jesus. Romans is a letter written so that we can be set free from the prison houses where our souls are entrapped and enslaved And we have a lot to look forward to as we make our way through the letter. Young Christians, young theologians, let's start with you again this morning. I want you to try to answer one question. What is the gospel? We talk about it a lot, but I want you to see if you can explain what the gospel is. There are a lot of different ways we'll talk about the gospel from this part of the letter this morning. But see if you can answer in your own words, what is the gospel? Talk about it with your families this afternoon or at some point throughout the week. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior in the letter of Paul to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise And to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you to open these verses to us and allow us to see Jesus Christ, the Savior of all the nations, and the King and the Head of the Church, 
revealing himself to us here in this portion of the letter. And we pray as always that in your strong but tender way, you would touch the parts of us that are immature and unbelieving and unfaithful, and that you would give to us discipline to go along with our baptism. You have chosen us and called us to belong to you and saved us in Jesus the Son. And now, O oh Lord, we ask that you in your fatherly way will make us more after the likeness of Jesus. Give to us the redemption that he has won for us. And in our growth in grace, we will give you thanks and be filled with joy. We ask it all with love and expectancy in Christ the Savior. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, I hope you're not wearing white today. It's against the rules. You're not supposed to wear white according to the rules of polite society. It's after Labor Day. And whoever comes up with these things has said, after the first Monday of September, no white pants, no white suits, no white dresses, nothing beyond a white shirt. That's what we're obliged to. But nobody knows why. It's written in all the etiquette books, but the reason that we ever agreed to this rule is lost forever. There are theories, of course. Some theories have to do with the calendar. One theory says that white was a cooler fabric to wear in the summer months in the cities. And then when September came, the temperatures would cool off and folks could put their whites away for another season and wear darker colors. Another theory has it that with September, autumn rains came and dark colors were more useful for hiding mud spatters. Some think that the rule was a calendar concern. White pants and Panama hats and white sundresses, that was leisure wear. That was what people wore to signal that they were escaping the city to the trendy resorts. And by putting their white clothing away, it signaled that the vacation season had officially come to an end. But the most convincing theory is that it was actually a rule of class distinction. It had no meaning whatsoever. It was just a trick played by the wealthy on those who were not so wealthy, but wanted to look and seem wealthy. So those who were truly mannered and who ran in the right circles and had the right financial portfolios, they got together and they agreed that after Labor Day, they would not wear white. But the tactless Nouveau Riche didn't know any better. It was a way of saying some belong and others don't. So here's this ridiculous rule that we've agreed to, apparently, but nobody knows why. Paul, on the other hand, has written and sent a letter. It's an epic letter. Sent it to Rome, Italy, the church there, the center of the civilized world. And in the letter, Paul says, you must wear the gospel, but I also want you to know why. You must always wear the gospel of Jesus and you can never take it off. It never goes out of season, but I want you to know why that is. Before we get to that, Paul gives us the substance of the gospel. It is what God promised through his prophets. 
It is what God promised in the Holy Scriptures. Everything the prophets spoke and everything the Scriptures contain is this gospel Paul is writing of. And this gospel is fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God, a descendant of David, a promised saving king who not only claimed to be the Messiah, but Paul says showed himself to be the Messiah convincingly with one event, his resurrection from the dead. For Paul, the argument's over with the resurrection. For Paul, this is the most convincing piece of Messiahship. This is where Christ's power is truly shown. How do you oppose one who was dead but is no longer dead? How do you say no with any strength at all to one who died and then rose to life? How do you withstand with any convincing power at all one who has already died but is no longer a dead one? For Paul... The argument's over. And this is the gospel. God has overcome sin and judgment and death and hostility between humankind and himself through his promised, sent, and risen son. And by the way, since we're on it, Paul is saying Jesus is the only savior for all humanity. Many critics want to try to say that Jesus is a cultural messiah But he's only Messiah for those who accept him, mainly Christianized Gentiles. But, the critics want to say, he is a Messiah with a very limited kingdom and realm and reach. But Paul says he's the king over all nations in verse 6. His name is the name of authority for all peoples. And here's why. He was resurrected. Death is the hateful enemy of all humanity. And if Jesus shattered the strength of death with his triumphant rising, then he is the loving king all nations need. He is the merciful master all peoples need. His gospel is not culturally narrow. It is the gospel for all cultures because death robs every culture and no culture has been able to manufacture for itself a resurrection of its own. Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus is for all people in all places in all times. And there are no exceptions. The gospel of God's salvation comes through Jesus to everybody if it comes to them at all. And why wouldn't Paul emphasize the resurrection? After all, Paul, the hater of the church in his former life, a zealot eager for the destruction of the church, this movement following after Jesus, this same Paul was on his way to Damascus to lead a campaign of terror against the churches there, and the resurrected Jesus appeared to him on the road and knocked him off his horse, and Paul followed Jesus from that time on. After all, once again, how do you say no to a resurrected Savior? That's Paul's biography coming through in the letter. Paul's story soaking into what he writes in the letter. By the way, did you notice that Paul doesn't give us a resume? 
You should listen to me, Romans, because I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the best Pharisee there was. And I'm a graduate of the best rabbinical schools, and I was the the valedictorian of my class, and I've been all over the world, and here's a list of the churches that I've planted throughout the world, and now I'm on my way to you, and once I'm done with you, I'm going to go on to Spain, a place where the gospel is never reached. It's never been proclaimed, but I'm going to take it there. Paul doesn't throw around his credentials or argue his authority, and he doesn't appeal to the fallacy of expertise for those of you trained in logic. The fallacy that says, you should listen to me because I'm the recognized expert. He doesn't try cheap tactics like that. Instead, he says, my name is Paul, and I am a servant of Christ Jesus, and I was called to be an apostle. I am set apart for the gospel of God. I've I've come to this not in the way that people like us usually find our places in this world. I didn't set this as a career path. I was chosen to this. I have been reserved to do this. I was called to do this, particularly and personally by the risen Jesus himself. This isn't what I always wanted to be when I grew up. This isn't what I decided upon because it lets me exercise my gifts and my particular skill sets. This isn't a case of figuring out how to do what you're passionate about, he was saying. I was called. And calling is the only thing strong enough to move someone like Paul from being a hater of Jesus to being an unreserved lover of Jesus. Calling is the only thing strong enough to move someone like Paul from being a destroyer of the church to being a builder of the church. Calling is the only thing strong enough to move Paul from being a denier of Jesus' power of salvation to being a believer in it. He has called me to do this through his resurrection, Paul says. Technically, I never finished seminary. I graduated. I put on a robe and I walked across the stage and I shook the hands of the president of the institution He gave me a diploma, and my name was written in calligraphy across the top of it, and his signature is at the bottom. But I didn't finish. When I entered seminary, I tested out of a handful of classes, and due to an oversight on my part, I never made up all those credit hours. And conveniently, the week before graduation, the registrar discovered this, (laughs) called me into the office, and the dean was waiting for me, And the dean walked me through the problem. You're one class short. I was quiet. I didn't have anything to say. It was one of few times for me where I was speechless. (laughs) And then he asked me, so what are you going to do after graduation? And I said, I'm moving to South Carolina to be campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship at a state university there. And the dean said, ah, Well, that changes everything. He went to his desk and he pulled out a form and he scribbled something on it and stamped it with a stamp. I have no idea what the form was. And he handed it over to the registrar who left the office and he turned back to me and he said, congratulations, you're graduating after all. (laughs) And I said, I don't understand. I'm still a class short. 
And he said, yeah, but you're called. Make up the class somewhere. Take a correspondence course or attend a class at the seminary near the city where you end up. But you're called. Two credit hours can't stand in the way of that. Go do what Jesus has called you to do. Now, I still haven't made up the class, and I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I never will. I intend to die one class short. And here's why. If I take that class, I lose this story, and there's more gospel in this story. And I'm not giving it up. And if you live by credentials, you will always have to defend them. You never get to stop arguing them to yourself and to others. But calling, calling, you never have to argue, ever. Jesus argues it for you. Now in the letter, Paul switches gears just slightly. He stays on the same thing, but he moves his focus just slightly. He says... You are included in this in verse 6. You were called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's repeated in verse 7. To all you in Rome who are loved by God, and in that love and from that love alone, you are called to be His saints, His people. Paul is giving us a living definition of grace. You didn't come to this gospel on your own. You didn't decide for it or choose it or find it by yourselves. You were called into it. The God of the gospel who promised the gospel and sent it in Jesus the Son, He has called you into His gospel and He set you apart for His gospel so that you're His servants too. This work that I've been given... You've been given too. Maybe you won't travel to plant churches in Spain. But you have to see your city as needing the gospel. You have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead to take away the death that fills your city. You have to want the resurrected salvation that makes dead things alive and useful and loved of God to sweep through your city and to fill your church and to plant other churches out of you. Norma Jean Baker bounced from foster home to foster home as a child. And then when she turned 20 years of age, she landed her first film contract. It was 1946. And she changed her name to Marilyn Monroe, and she transformed herself into the uber-fantasy girl. But she was surprisingly, tragically philosophical about the whole thing. And here's what she said about her fame. Hollywood is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and 50 cents for your soul. We've all chased after callings like that. We've chased after the gilded callings that turned out to be cheap. We've all chased after the callings that seemed seductive, but they turned out to be siren songs driving us into the rocks. 
We've all chased after callings whose kiss seems to be captivating and intoxicating, but in the end, the kiss sucks our souls dry and windless and empty and dead. But this calling Paul is talking about isn't like that. This is the calling from the risen king, and it's a kiss that's like an awakening, a dawning, a new birth into a life of boldness and confidence. A new birth into a holy longing like Paul lists in verse 11. I want to come to you and I want to strengthen you with the gospel. I want us to strengthen one another in the gospel. I want us to grow in the gospel together. That's what we're called to, Paul says. What he's really saying is the gospel of Jesus isn't a gospel of your choosing. It's a gospel of calling. The gospel of Jesus is the gospel of calling and he reaches out with His calling in everything that He has ever done for us. His incarnation is a calling. Jesus, the Word of God, spoken in a body that has come to earth, calls us to be the stubbornly present glory of God in our own bodies, walking and living insistently and deliberately and worshipfully in a world that tries its hardest to bury God's glory. The crucifixion of Jesus is a calling. In Him giving Himself up to the cross, Jesus answers in His own body everything that we pleaded for in our confession of sin. In putting Himself on the cross, Jesus answers in His own body everything we wanted to call out to God for, but we choked on it because it was too much for us to say. His putting... Our disobedience to death in His own body means that He can call us away from our bullying sins of captivity as easily and as warmly as a mother calls her children home to supper. The resurrection of Jesus is a calling. It's the sincere daily calling, do not be afraid. What is there to fear After my rising, what could you possibly face today that is stronger than, greater than, my risen strength? Calling is everything for Christians in the church. The calling of Jesus is what defines us more than anything else in all the world. And it isn't just an abstract idea. It is deeply practical for Paul and for the Romans and for us. Calling is what keeps us out of the trap of being important. Calling keeps us from the devastating mistake of needing to be important. Now, don't forget who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the Romans. And Rome is the most important city in all the world because Rome owns all the world. It's the capital of the empire. It is the epicenter of civilization. Modern civilization, as we know it, was born in the Rome to which Paul writes, politics, science, engineering, arts, culture, it all comes from Rome. So, how do you think the Romans feel about themselves? They don't struggle with self-esteem, let's put it that way. The Romans love being Roman. And they look down on everyone who is not Roman. And I think this is worth considering. 
the Romans probably felt about themselves much the way Dallasites feel about themselves. Because we have influence. We get things done. We know how to accomplish things. We have standards and expectations that must be met. And we're educated. And we're successful. And we love to flash our resumes where Paul does not. And we are connected. We have stuff. We need to be seen as important. But actually, Paul says, that's a false need. And look at the way he adjusts the Romans' view of themselves. Dear important Romans, most important people in all the world, verse 14... You're no more important than anyone else, he says. This gospel that I proclaim is for Greeks and barbarians. I preach it to the wise and to the foolish. So the wise aren't nearly as wise as they like to think, and the foolish aren't nearly as foolish as they fear. The gospel is what saves us all. So you Romans, you fit in perfectly to this gospel, and I can't wait to come to you and help you understand the gospel too. You're not important, Paul is writing. You are called. You're loved. That's better. Calling never allows us to take ourselves seriously. We take Jesus and his gospel in our lives seriously. Important people in the church are a disaster. Called people in the church are a delight. We get to repent of and shed our inflamed sense of importance. And if you grasp this and you begin to practice it, it will turn your life and the church inside out. Calling is what keeps us from being critics. I think this is one of our biggest cultural weaknesses right now. We're just a culture of critics. We hold our opinions in such high esteem that it gives us the ability to judge and dismiss everything. And yes, I understand with the constant deluge of so many influences in our culture, we have to critically assess and analyze everything. But our problem is, once we criticize something, we never offer a constructive alternative in its place. So what's happened is criticism criticism is no longer a skill... It's become our emotional disposition, and that's what makes it a disease. The the God who created all things out of his goodness is the God of a woefully uncreative people, and that doesn't fit. That doesn't measure right. The God who created all things for his glory and spoke words of love into an empty nothingness and then sent his son into the creation to redeem it out of its brokenness, to recreate it. He intends for us to be redemptive co-creators with Him. But we've forgotten our calling and we've invented a cheap replacement calling instead. Here's a simpler and straighter way to say the same thing. The church isn't supposed to be a critical church. The church is supposed to be an evangelistic church. Evangelism is a far more effective weapon against brokenness than criticism could or will ever be. And we get to repent of our critical spirits and 
plead with our God and fast and call out to him, asking for, begging for the desire to be an evangelistic church. Calling is what turns us from tentative evangelists to convinced evangelists, from simmering evangelists to white-hot thermal evangelists, not by duty and not by guilt, according to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What he's saying is there's no, there's no reason to be ashamed of love. Shame is not a right response to love. Why would we ever be ashamed of the love that thought of us eternally and died for us willingly and passionately and rose for us unsparingly. There is no reason to be ashamed of this love. And this gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I know because it's the power of God that saved me, Paul is saying. And that power is still at work in the world, saving God's lost elect. And we have the privilege, not the duty, the privilege of calling them home. Nothing to be ashamed of there. Calling is what makes us truly righteous and not self-righteous, according to verse 17. Here's the gospel. Jesus saved you by his resurrection. You can't raise yourself. He must raise you. And you receive that resurrection by faith. You're righteous in Him, not by works of your own or achievements of your own or credentials that you've gathered for yourself. You are saved by faith in the works and achievements and credentials of Jesus. Here's the way it all works out. The more impressed you are with yourself, the less you will be impressed with Jesus. And the more impressed you are with Jesus, the less impressed you will be with yourself. And that's what faith feels like. That's what righteousness feels like. True righteousness, needing Jesus more than my own attempts and achievements and fleshly strength. That's what resurrection feels like. You're called, church. You're called to all of this and more. Skeptics, thank you for being with us this morning. It's always our pleasure to have you with us and to be included in your questions and your inquiries, your consideration of Jesus. Was he the Lord he claimed to be? Here's what Paul says to you in this part of his letter. Dear skeptic, Jesus is your Lord too. Now, there are two responses to that. You can enjoy him as Lord, or you can fight against him as your Lord. And I think I know your objection. Let me, let me state it for you. You're going to ask, what is it that makes Jesus my Lord? And the answer is, his resurrection. He is risen from the death that will swallow you, and he has resurrection to give to you too. And this morning, he's calling you. Can you hear him calling? Can you feel the loving pull to him? If so, then believe him and go with him and follow him. And you'll feel his resurrection inside of you, beginning to fight against your own personal closeness and attachment to death, whatever form that takes. 
You know the difference between Paul and the rest of us? You know why Paul was such a muscular saint and we're such nervous saints? He never forgot his calling. He always lived close to it. And we forget our calling daily. There there was an old Coast Guardsman stationed in the North Sea. And one night a distress call was received at the station. A fishing boat was going down in a storm. So the captain called his crew together and he steered his ship into the wind and the waves and they followed the blips on the radar screen out to the sinking ship. And the helmsman on the mission was a young sailor who had never been out on a distress call. He had never been in seas as rough as this, even with all of his training. And in fear, he complained to the captain, Sir, we'll never make it. The rollers are too big for our vessel. And the captain gave the order to hold steady. A few minutes later, the helmsman couldn't contain his fear anymore, so he turned to the captain again, and he said, Captain, we have to turn back to port. But again, the captain ordered that he hold the bearing. One last time, the helmsman turned to the captain and tried to convince him to abort the mission. He said, Captain, if we go out, we may not come back. And this time the captain gave no order. He gave wisdom instead. He said simply, son, we don't have to come back. We only have to go out. And that is the wisdom Paul is giving to the church. The church in Rome and the church in Dallas. If you're called, you have nothing to worry about. You never have to think of your own safety. You never have to think of the danger. You never have to give a single thought to the waves and the wind and the powers that want to sink us. You don't have to listen to the voices of Dissent and doubt. You don't even have to listen to your own deeply seated fears. And you never have to fret for your own ability and skill in situations that are far beyond you. You just go out because Jesus the risen has called you. And what in the world can possibly win against Him? Lord Jesus, keep us from being the highly credentialed and instead allow us to live with the freedom and the joy of those who are called. Allow us, by your grace, to forsake all of our strengths and all of our accomplishments and all of the things we like to consider as we think about our own worthiness and ability. Allow us to leave them all behind and instead to consider ourselves merely as those who have been called in the resurrection of Jesus the Savior. We'd be far happier if we thought of ourselves this way. And we spend whole lifetimes trying to fight for confidence and security for ourselves in this old, worn-out way. 
So now, Lord Jesus, we'll need your hand to touch us and heal us and to begin to change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about the church and the way we think about the world. We'll need you to touch us and heal us in the way we think and feel about you as you wear your lordship, your loving, caring, keeping lordship over us. We ask only this with regard to all of that. As we read the letter, you will set us free from the prisons we build for our own souls and the prisons that others want to lock us away in. Set us free in the resurrection of the Savior and we will be eternally glad. Pray it all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit.